Broadsheet Radio Network. You ready? Leo, you ready? Rachel, you ready? All right, boys. Let's, Let's go. go. <laughs> Let's go, girls. Do, 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 do. Welcome to Shared History. We're back. It's another episode. Cass thought that I was just singing for myself, but I decided to turn it into the intro. So, <laughs> so now I'm here. Shared History, the happiest place on earth. I mean, it is if Shania's there. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> And it, you know what? You know what? Today it is the happiest place on earth uh, because at long last we have as our guests a couple of human beings who I refer to as our podcast twins only because we both we all born uh, history podcasts into the universe. I think in like the same month of the same year, yeah. and you know you just you find the people who are on a similar journey at a similar time. And you follow them on social media. <laughs> you like their posts and you listen to their episodes and you think that you know each other. Internet friends. That's what being a millennial is all about. <laughs> so let, we took, them, took us forever to get them on here. Uh, that's our fault, not theirs. So let's, let's get them in here. Uh, Rachel Lee Perez is a fun-loving, kind-hearted gal who loves coffee and long walks on the beach. If you catch her after a cocktail or two, you might find her passionately discussing one of two things, and these two things only. One, the erasure of women from history, or two, the various John, Jean Benet Ramsey theories, which there are a lot of, so you could only talk about that for a very long time. And then also on the mic, Leo Wallacones is an introverted extrovert, hard relate, who will take any and every opportunity to eat, drink, and spend time with friends. She's an event planner by day and an avid Netflix watcher by night and is very passionate about font choices. <laughs> very. Welcome the Hashtag History Gals. Hi, thank you so much for having us. We did it. Cass yes, is like thank dying. Thank you, we're so excited to be here. Can I just I say, Rachel, and not in a creepy way, I want to get you drunk. Although it sounds like you oh. don't need to be drunk to talk about JonBenet Ramsey or the erasure of women in history. Entirely oh. unnecessary. And Leah, I, you don't need to be drunk, but I want to hear you drunk talking about... Font choices. Font, Font choices. Choice. I almost said grammar. <laughs> Font choices. No, Cass, I get you drunk to talk about grammar. <laughs> oh, I, the funny thing is I'm so bad at grammar, truly, but I have very aggressive feelings about Oxford commas. Oh, I my gosh. Very, me too. Actually, I, I got into a yeah. fight once with my parents about it. Yes! Okay, wait, hold on. Okay. okay. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. This is really important. It might ruin my, it might ruin my mic quality. Wait, what? Hold on. Somewhere, wait, can you see the very bottom sticker? Yeah. Team Oxford comma. Yep. Okay. Cass, for or against? Four. Leah, four or against? Four. Great. Um, how many of you guys uh, write for a living in a situation where you don't get to choose the uh, whether you're yeah. writing in AP style or uh, Chicago manual? No. Me, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Who gives a fuck about an Oxford comma? Me. <laughs> 
I do. I uh, I would like, is this a safe space to come out as not fully <sighs> anti-Oxford comma, but uh, anti-Oxford Kick comma Who when it is in? not necessary. Okay. Well, it's going to be a really awkward podcast from here. Yeah. <laughs> I could feel everyone's butthole just tighten a little bit and be like, Ugh. yeah, yeah. There's, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. There's some hostility. Not going to lie. <laughs> but this, this, it, I, you know, uh, this is a safe space. Um, unfortunately. So Natalie, welcome. I just, I just don't, <laughs> I think it. I'm for it when it is necessary for the clarity of the statement and I'm against it when it isn't and that's how i that's how i feel give about an it. example of when it's not necessary oh, oh. shit <laughs> no this is just to, just curious if you're listing three things that aren't confusing uh so if you're just saying you're going to the store and you're going to pick up apples bananas and oranges you don't need the oxford comma mm. also in ap style you're not supposed to use it and a lot of my clients work in ap style so in my personal writing i tend to use it or at least that used to be the case but I omit it. I, I mean, don't write professionally, so it's all texting. I I use a lot of commas. I live in the run-on sentence. Semicolons are my best friend. Absolutely. So sometimes it can be confusing because I've already got 12 commas in a sentence before an Oxford comma. But sometimes I feel like in that instance it's necessary then. But I agree. If it's confusing the statement, you don't need it. But I'll always opt for. I concur. An unnecessary yeah. pause sometimes. Yeah, way to start it off weird, Nat. Yeah, I really am. Yeah. When the majority of the group is saying Team Oxford comma, you just got to nod your head and say, yeah. You yeah, yeah, me too. Definitely, yeah. I Natalie, sure. we wanted hashtag history to like us, yeah. and it's starting off real awkward. I will not stand <laughs> idly by and change my opinions on punctuation to cater to my, to pander to my crowd. Yeah. That's where I stand. Also, <laughs> historically speaking, the reason why AP style, the most popular common like German st German journalist style uh, doesn't use an Oxford comma is because it was one more thing that typesetters had to uh, set and they were like anything that was an extra thing that they were like that we can we not can you not make us do that uh, Natalie I'm tired of of your excuses I'm tired <laughs> of you doubling down um, I respect the historical aspect of it. I don't though. know. This is some revisionist history, as far as I know. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, you cite your source. Let's just let's just jump <laughs> just into it because you. if we don't get started, <laughs> we could go on this forever. I mean, passionate enough that it's on my laptop, right? Yeah, it's true. I. I secret like I love you girls and I know you're gonna bring a great topic, but I secretly wanna can it and just fight about the awkward comma but for thirty it, minutes. It makes sense. <laughs> it's actually perfect because the hashtag history podcast focuses on telling stories of history's greatest like controversies. And isn't this controversial? <laughs> totally. You know what? Nat is actually pro Oxford comma. She just wanted a good segue. <laughs> I am very yes. pro segue. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, though, for having us, even though you are not on the same team as the rest of us. Uh, we are really happy to be here because we've been following you all for a really long time, too. I do think that we started in the same month. We started in July 2019. Yep. Yep. Same. That's thing. crazy. What is your anniversary date? The 3rd. July 3rd. That's crazy. Congratulations. Thank you. I, I took Natalie on a an all-inclusive honeymoon vacation uh i think no. I, i'm trying to remember what the three-year anniversary is i don't think it's cotton it might be oh yeah lesson. what is it oh, God, I, I hope, hope it's, it's leather and wait for <laughs> your am your delivery some you're getting leather stuff yes please um yeah so happy anniversary to all of us <laughs> at time of recording yes. we are all freshly anniversed Yes. Should we just dig right in? Dig in. I've already made you guys my enemies, so let's <laughs> <laughs> let's share something other than uh, an argument. Well, I mean, this you're right. This won't turn into an argument because we're all going to be on the same side of this awful topic, and that is um, just infuriated and depressed. Mm -hmm. My natural state of being. Yeah. See, so not too much of a shakeup here. <laughs> Um, what we're going to discuss on your podcast today is the forced sterilization of thousands of Latinas throughout the 20th century here in Leah and my home state of California. So really just a light topic. Yeah, just light. Easy breezy over here. Easy, easy breezy. For sure. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, that Oxford comma one did get pretty heated. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God we're all going to be on the same side of this topic. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Cass, we have to take an ad break. Fair enough. But we're a history podcast, so we have to infuse this interlude with some tasty, tasty facts. Okay. Oh, tasty facts. Like brewing beer using hops became a standard practice as a result of early drug laws in Bohemia. Ah, yes. The Reinheitsgebot Law of 1560. I remember it well. Now that hops are no longer a legally required ingredient in beer, welcome to the future, our friends at Herbiary have taken it upon themselves to release your taste buds from the cages of convention. They've experimented with over 200 different herbs and botanicals, building on the rich tradition and fermented folklore of hop-free brewing. Learn more about their delicious section of brews and where to find them at herbiary.com. In 1909, California passed a eugenics law that allowed for the sterilization of people considered to be, quote, unfit or feeble-minded, unquote. Um, and I know that you two both recently had Beyond Reproach on your podcast, and they talked about the Buck v. Bell Supreme Court case. And so a lot of that is going to come up in here. Yeah. Um, why do all of our podcast friends, all of our podcast friends keep coming on and talking about forced sterilization? I know. Sorry about that. It wasn't it wasn't a planned effort. Now, of the 20,000 people that were forcibly sterilized in California between the years of 1909 and 1979, it was found that Latinas carried a nearly 60% higher risk of forced sterilization than any other racial group. Perhaps one of the most devastating things about this dark chapter in history are the heartbreaking stories of numerous women attempting to get pregnant, not realizing that they had been sterilized. In particular, there was a groundbreaking class action lawsuit in the 1970s that 10 Latina women would bring forward, proving that they had been coerced into signing what many of them did not realize was a sterilization consent form. 
due to a language barrier and the fact that some of these women were forced to sign this form while they were literally in labor. Many of them did not realize that they had been sterilized until weeks and months later. Some of them didn't realize it until they were attempting to get pregnant again. Yeah. Now, today we, again, will be focusing primarily on California and sterilization of Latina women in California throughout the 20th century. But that isn't to ignore the horrendous stories of black and indigenous women, as well as women with disabilities that were also forcibly sterilized at the time. Additionally, our topic does have a narrow focus on California because for one, it's our home state, like we mentioned, uh, which you know we have a love-hate relationship with, um, <laughs> but also because California made up 80% of the sterilizations throughout the US during this time period. Uh, we do, however, yeah, it's ah, holy shit. insane. And I don't know that a lot of people know this, we'll get into it, but eugenics in California at this time was insane. Uh, we do, however, want to acknowledge that harmful eugenics laws were passed throughout the US and affected tens of thousands of people nationwide, despite today's episode being more focused on California. Was there also, uh, I, I wonder I wonder how much that percentage of forced sterilizations at the time correlates also to the distribution of the Latinx community at that time as well. Like how, how much of the Latina population was also in California and then there's like the overlap kind of of those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was probably, I, I mean, that definitely probably had something to do with it. Obviously, mm -hmm. California has a huge Latinx, uh, Hispa um, Hispanic population, especially, and at that time, even more so than the rest of the country. But I think it also has very much to do with the fact that there was a huge eugenics movement in California at the time as well, like much more so than the rest of the U.S., when I think of forced sterilization and eugenics, the I don't think about it a lot. It's not just always on the front of my mind, by the way, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> that was a weird set. Um, but there was like there was a famous and I can never remember exactly where it was, but it was in the the South. I I thought it was twenties, thirties, maybe it was like the forties or fifties, of uh African American populations. It may, maybe it was North Carolina or or alabama i know there was one that and it's probably just one that people tend to hone in on when they're like you know clickbait yeah. stuff and so i'm like oh that was you know in the south especially when eugenics took off i always think of it located closer to mm -hmm. southeast corner of america so it's shocking to me to hear that i mean that it's majority yeah, in California. Yeah, that's it's one not. of the reasons why we actually wanted to talk about this on your podcast, because it's something that we've already covered on our own, but we feel it needs more socialization. It needs to be uh, told more because there are so many people that don't know about it. And I think because California does have, mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a reputation of being progressive, progressive also meant that we were on the forefront of breaking scientific technologies and at that time was eugenics so i think a lot of people because of the reputation that california has as being more progressive and liberal and and science forward um they don't know these things but all of that kind of played hand in hand and why 
California had such high rates of eugenics versus the other states throughout the nation. Mm. So I think, oh, go ahead. And a lot of times I feel like progressivism is used to forgive sure. the sins of the past when, and instead of recognizing and speaking to mm -hmm. them. It's like, but look how good we are now, even though we're never <laughs> Exactly. Great. No, I think that goes perfectly into why uh, not many people know about this topic, because it, in California in particular, it can, I don't necessarily want to use the word easily, but easily is the word that comes to mind. It can be easily uh, covered, masked by the other accomplishments and, and our other politics here. Mm-hmm. So I think the best place for us to start is the history of eugenics here in the United States. And again, this topic that we're covering today, it's a really narrow focus. It's focusing on its history here in the States and more specifically in California. The direct definition of eugenics from the Merriam-Webster dictionary is as follows, quote, the practice or advocacy of controlled selective breeding of human populations as by sterilization to improve the population's genetic composition, unquote. Or in the words of Francis Galton, a major pioneer of the movement, eugenics is, quote, the study of all agencies under human control which can improve or impair the racial quality of future generations, unquote. So essentially to kind of sum that all down it's the practice of eradicating quote-unquote undesirable qualities and traits and at this time such undesirable qualities and traits included um and this is direct language from early eugenicists obviously this is not me listing off what i view as undesirable traits uh early eugenicists these traits for them were things like mental illness, disabilities, tendencies for drug or alcohol abuse, tendencies to be a criminal, even things like poverty made someone um, lesser than. Now this may all sound really familiar uh, when we think of Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust and the Nazis, but here's the thing. Uh, many of the eugenics ideas that Nazi Germany got, they got from here in the states. More specifically, they got from here in California. In fact, a leading financier of the eugenics movement here in California sent along details of the program to Dr. Fritz Lenz, who was a leading Nazi eugenicist in 1937. When Lenz wrote back, he said, quote, you were so kind to send new information about sterilization particulars in California. These practical experiences are also very, very valuable for us in Germany. For this, I thank you." End quote. <laughs> also, I think the two most disgusting words I've ever heard next to each other are racial quality. Ugh. Yep. Eugenics just freaks me out so oh, much. Oh, it's gross. It's just gross. And like it's, it's so, I hate how progressive at the time yeah. and like forefront of science and like, oh, we're doing yeah. such great things. I'm like, oh my, like, oh my God, you guys, stop. Yeah. And really how illogical it was that there was just this giant blanket thrown over, you know, the for with for the term feeble-minded that really anyone that you wanted could fall under that umbrella oh yeah yeah just entirely illogical it yeah. was like a weird witch hunt of like mm -hmm. oh my god my neighbor natalie hates oxford commas she's pretty <laughs> feeble-minded 
That's sterilizer. I do wow. think that I saw that as a definition in the dictionary for this. Uh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For, for certain. <laughs> they aren't like such arbitrary things though. Or, I mean, a lot of them designated as feeble-minded were things we just didn't know enough about diseases or disabilities but it truly mm-hmm. was just like this person's a little odd let's throw them in an institution and say feeble-minded yeah of helping anyone yep. well and cast to what to what you said about uh and it was it was north carolina i mean I, I believe the case, the case that you're talking about is the four sterilizations in north carolina that i believe are from like the ones that they studied were from like the 20s to like the 70s yes um, like how long it went on i that's bizarre well, and uh a lot of them were the law the for the sterilization law in north carolina extended to people on public welfare so basically mm-hmm. it was also like like you girls said the the oh you're not contributing quote unquote you're not a contributing member of the labor force like that then you're considered quote surplus population. Yeah. I, I mean, they that. were close, but they didn't nail it. It's systemic, not genetic yeah. poverty. <laughs> you know, we can fix this with, you know, yeah. government subsidies and help, not fucking sterilization. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> That's a crazy thought, you know. Oh no, help that... people below the yeah, yeah, yeah. line. <laughs> And I I appreciate the rage because we've barely dived into this. Yeah. Oh <laughs> shit! Oh man! <laughs> we've only just started. Yeah. Now just to bring it a little even closer to home, uh, for us we actually live in Sacramento, California, and still to this day we have some parks and streets named after these eugenicist leaders, including most prominently Charles Gady, who was a white supremacist and eugenicist, uh, who was also personally thanked by Nazi Germany for passing along his knowledge in the eugenics fields. Like for instance, our arboretum and our university used to be called the Gady Arboretum. Uh, We have multiple roads, there used to be Gady Park, and it's just slowly, slowly they're being changed and updated, but there are still some holdouts. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt again, but I Please love... Please do. Could you imagine your legacy being personally thanked by Adolf Hitler? Ah, uh, yes. Ooh! <laughs> and a lovely thank you card. It was scented. Embossed. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. Not great. So sterilization was the common eugenics practice that was used to an like essentially breed out people with these less desirable traits Um, because we're going to be talking about female sterilization so much i thought it important to discuss what exactly female sterilization is and how it's performed i'm not going to get all technical and medical here um you know no no heavy details i'm going to make this kind of quick but essentially female sterilization which is you know often more casually referred to as getting your tubes tied is the procedure in which you block the fallopian tubes by cutting or sealing them. This procedure is nearly 100% effective um, at ensuring that you will never get pregnant again. And it is easily, or it's not easily um, successfully reversible. So I don't wanna say it is 100% impossible to reverse female sterilization because of course we you know we've all heard those crazy, very, very few and very far between stories uh, where they can, but it is incredible incredibly rare 
the odds of getting pregnant after having your tubes tied is less than 1%. Female sterilization is intended to be permanent. And for the vast majority of people, it cannot be reversed. This is where we say, not a doctor. Yes, not a doctor. <laughs> this is from my WebMD research. <laughs> uh, so like I already shared, or like Leah shared, 80% of sterilizations as part of the eugenics movement happened here in California. While Indiana was the first state to enact sterilization laws, California was not far behind it. Fucking insane. Sorry, I just needed oh. to yell shocker after Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I know, we could have placed bets. <laughs> On April 26, 1909, California became the third state to institute sterilization laws. The first set of laws allowed for state institutions, so things like prisons and hospitals, to sterilize those who were deemed, again, quote-unquote, unfit or feeble-minded. Um, in hospitals, this oftentimes meant the sterilization of those that were mentally ill. For prisons, this oftentimes meant sex offenders, repeat offenders, and prisoners with life sentences. Yeah, and once again, this is the part where I'm just going to once again talk about what constituted, quote, feeble-minded, which we already pretty much outlined it, but uh, it was a catch-all term used by eugenicists to describe anyone that perhaps had abnormal behavior, maybe a low IQ, maybe a woman who was very emotional, uh, you know, anything like that. It could extend to someone with mental illness, someone living in poverty, someone with social dependency, all of the above. Um, even people who were considered quote unquote promiscuous. Um, so feeble-minded people were one of the biggest concerns for eugenicists as they believed that these people could be anywhere we Looking. we did this with beyond reproach mm -hmm. so but i would like to do it again based on any of those things everyone since podcasting is a visual medium raise <laughs> your hand if you technically qualify as feeble-minded no oh, I, I was just gonna say listeners. That oh i didn't mean to steal that from you no oh, i was God. just gonna say no i wasn't gonna say that exact thing but i'm pretty sure when we covered this on our podcast i said by these rules you you and i are 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 feeble-minded you know you'd be hard yeah. pressed to find anyone who's not jesus yeah. except straight white men <laughs> of course of course so the fear was that these these feeble-minded people would uh be lurking and that they would pass off their abnormal behavior when they reproduced with a normal person and then create even more undesirable bloodlines so ew moving on <laughs> It's a, it's actually a, and I'm going to bring this, we, we just, uh, the episode before this one, we talk a lot about abortion rights in America specifically. And I brought up that anti-abortion legislation is kind of a directly tied to the witch hunts, like all of this, every, every violence against women in general can be true. Can you could draw a straight line back to back to the witch hunts because any any excuse for an act of violence uh against women who are deemed scary whether for their independence or mm -hmm. for their differences natalie what does witch stand for <laughs> women in total women in total control, control of yes yes <laughs> That's my new favorite song right now. Right? But it's so true. Like the yeah. people that were targeted, I mean, from the witch hunts and were women who were just like, I'm, I'm existing. 
independent yeah. independently yeah and then extended yep. to any other woman or threatening figure or creature mm-hmm. yeah sorry i'm not angry i'm not angry i'm not We're angry at angry. you too i just want everyone to know that <laughs> But your story is bringing me rage, and I thank you for that. (laughs) So on June 13th, 1913, the sterilization laws were expanded to include anyone who was, quote, afflicted with hereditary insanity or incurable chronic mania or dementia, unquote. Parental consent was oftentimes sought by the medical providers before performing sterilization on minors, but it wasn't required. And I want us to look at that sentence one more time and repeat important elements of it so we can make sure we picked up on everything I said. These sterilization procedures were being conducted on minors. The third and final sterilization law in California was enacted in July of 1917 and yet again created further expansion on the previously instated sterilization laws. These eugenics laws would remain in place until 1979. Now, one of the largest reasons why California was so much at the forefront of this is because we had so much money and effort and resources really that was put behind the eugenics education here. Uh, For instance, in 1928 in Pasadena, an organization called the Human Betterment Foundation was established. And this foundation's sole purpose was to produce scientific data to educate and demonstrate to naysayers the benefits of eugenic sterilization. So propelling this foundation were some of the nation's leading scientists and educators at the time that relayed their pro-eugenics messages to these libraries, town halls, even to schools. So as this movement progressed, now that we've, you know, done the history on eugenics in the United States and specifically in California, why were Latinas so disproportionately targeted? Researchers from the University of Illinois and the University of Michigan found that, quote, biases against Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were especially prominent. Institutional authorities described Mexicans and their descendants as immigrants of an undesirable type and speculated that they were at a lower racial level than is found among American whites, unquote. Further, Stanford professor and eugenicist Lewis Terman was quoted in 1926 as saying that low intelligence was, quote, very common among Spanish, Indian, and Mexican families of the Southwest. Their dullness seems to be racial or at least inherent in the family stocks from which they come, unquote. It's the worst. I also love how so much of like uh, quote unquote unintelligence mm-hmm. is literally just language barriers. That's what mm-hmm. I was I was literally about like... to say that exact same thing. We're on the same page here. It's just oh, like God. Cool. if you have a student whose first language is Spanish, doesn't speak a lot of English, they're not going to be able to perform well or have a high IQ if they're being tested and communicated to in a language that they don't fully understand yet but also you know so many people so many latinx people in america are bilingual yes and like like fluently so and some more than others in english but like they still know two full ass languages yes and And you're trying to tell me they're unintelligent and we can't even agree on a comma (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, Good they, one. they, they okay, can just communicate you much just better. You just feel better about the comma thing. <laughs> <laughs> I feel we've, better now. <laughs> we've now we've made it over the hostility officially. Oh Thank gosh. you for that. But yes, I mean exactly what you're saying is yeah they're they're viewed as unintelligent. Perhaps if their second language isn't as fluent as their first, but they can still speak one more language than you can. Uh-huh. <laughs> At a minimum, one more yeah. language than you can. And even if they can only speak one language, they're probably fine in their own language. Of yep. course, anyone sounds dumb if they can't speak your language. They're just making sounds to you, but right. that weirdly makes you seem dumb. Like, I don't get it. Uh, it's horrible. To give a specific example of one of the horrendous stories to come out of California, uh, in 1930, there was a 16-year-old Mexican-American girl named Concepcion Ruiz who was arrested for running away with her boyfriend. It was considered to be, quote, subnormal, unquote, that a young woman would have sexual interest in a boy enough sexual interest in said boy that she would run away with him. I know it's an absurd concept, (laughs) honestly absurd, but between this subnormal sexual interest and the fact that Ruiz was also reported to have a lower than average IQ score, which could go right back to what you were just saying, Cass, the courts ended up declaring her to be mentally deficient. She was sent to the Sonoma State Home for the feeble-minded, and here she was sterilized despite her not giving consent to do so, and despite the fact that she verbally demanded that they not. At only 16 years old, Ruiz underwent an irreversible surgery that she did not consent to and that would forcibly change the course of her life. She would be but one of the 5,000 other people sterilized at Sonoma State Home for the Feeble-Minded, which nearly 20% of the sterilizations performed there at that facility would be men and women of Mexican descent. While Mexican-American men were also victims of the California eugenics movement, Mexican-American women were specifically targeted due to the disgusting stereotypes that Latinas are hypersexual, promiscuous and that they are more fertile than women from other racial backgrounds. Now, not only was sterilization in Latina women used as means of stopping the reproduction of quote low intelligence offspring, but also to stop the rate at which they were being produced. In other words, it was population control. I also think we need to put into context that anti-immigration and overall anti-Mexican sentiment that there was running concurrently to this mass sterilization. As part of the Immigration Act of 1924, the US Border Patrol was formed. Additionally, during the late 1920s, America was in the midst of the Great Depression with, as we know, white American men accusing men of Mexican descent of stealing American jobs. In fact, during the time of the Great Depression, upwards of 2 million people of Mexican descent were forcibly removed from the U.S., 60% of which were American citizens. Something else that many people don't know is that racial segregation in schools did not exclusively apply to black versus white children. In some cases, it also applied to Latino children. There were restaurants and movie theaters and public pools that would not cater to Latinx Americans. Keeping all of these things in mind can definitely help us further grasp the context of Latina forced sterilization throughout the 20th century, but might not help with the rage. (laughs) So you said the Border Patrol was created in the 20s? 
Yeah, in uh, and the, that's the same border control we still have now. Yeah, uh, in 1924. So it was, and nothing else in America is, but it was rooted in white supremacy and exists to this day to target Latinx people. Shocker! I don't believe it. Yes, I'm sorry. Are you saying that yeah, this... a police force is rooted in white supremacy? This is a revolutionary concept, and I'm going to need you to break it down. Go a little guys. slower for some of us that are just learning this new concept here. You guys, I think a little we slower. cracked it. I think we figured it out a, finally. A group of people that was specifically designed to police the population and bodies of another subsect of people who weren't represented in that task force doing that? is rooted in white supremacy what? and I still know, exists guys. to this day based on precedents of historical existence Wild. I, i'm constantly learning on this podcast i don't know you guys sound like conspiracy theorists this is all <laughs> so out, off off the wall well, it's like, not like know. i'm saying the world is round or anything that'd be wild <laughs> don't be <Jesus>. ridiculous <laughs> Or that Oxford commas are not necessary. Well, <laughs> wow. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so bad. All of it's bad. But uh, Leah, to, to yeah, to what Leah just said about the uh, segregation, segregation in schools, uh, Mendes versus Westminster was predates Brown versus the Board of Education, and mm -hmm. that one was uh, Mexican American uh, forced segregation. So. The more yeah. you know, go Google it, fam. Yeah. Are you Definitely. both? Are you both California natives? Yes. Yep. You are. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm from the Midwest. I feel like so much of American history taught in schools, when it comes to racial segregation, is so focused on North versus South, which is usually kind of hitting that East Coast side. And then when, again, at least Midwest, I'm sure you guys got a little bit more because you live there. What I was taught was, you know, we talked about internment and, you know, it was, it was so brief on Western mm -hmm. racial segregation and everything. And so, I, I mean, yeah, no, no one knows about this unless you're from there or even, even when you're from here, this was not taught in schools. Like it's, it's wild. Like I, I feel yeah. like once you hit, the Missouri River, it's like everything west or everything west of the Rocky Mountains is like still taught as like you guys are the frontier and the wilderness <laughs> and you know, we're still vying for gold and everything. I did do that for many class field trips. I do <laughs> too. Really? Oh and it's God. really it's like glitter. It's what it's just gold, like gold, gold glitter. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but but it's so it's so weird that the way it's still taught is yeah. that anything west of the Rockies is first more of all, progressive or well, no, it's it's taught like it is just this empty expanse of still like mm. just kind of cowboys and ranges, and at the same time, it's like oh, it's as progressive liberals and LA, you know, it's like yeah. when we teach a history of racism. The Western United States doesn't exist. We mentioned Japanese internment, but we don't want to talk about that too much. No, you know, 
it takes away from our heroicism from world war ii yeah yeah to give i'm not sure when this episode's coming out uh so i don't know if i'm giving something away ahead of time with our season or not but one of the upcoming topics that we're going to be covering um is the racist history of oregon a lot of people don't know about that either that oregon was literally founded on being like just a white state they banned black people drag oregon to filth yeah so but but it's like colorado in in fucking not fountainhead uh atlas shrugged (laughs) but i think it's exactly what you just said is and and we do the same thing you know i don't think it's just the way that it's taught you know in the midwest or east coast it's here too we're taught that because we are so diverse here um we're taught that racism never existed yeah yeah but also like chicago's super diverse but is also still one of the most segregated cities just by That's design. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Guys, can we write the textbooks? I feel like <laughs> we would fix so many things if just like us four and no one else. I'm so sorry textbooks. to bring it up once again, but will the textbooks have Oxford commas? I do think this is something yes. that has to be established early. Yes, on. because we can okay. write them in MLA formatting, which <laughs> requires it. And if you answered no to that question, we are erasing you from our <laughs> from history. history. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's finally happening. <laughs> oh my god, I'm I'm drunk with power. I get I get where it comes from now. Revisionist <laughs> history. My Leo Sun Pisces Moon nightmare. <laughs> that all of my friends secretly hate me and wish I wasn't here. Wait, is that a Leo thing? Because I, I, now I get it. I think I'm it's a balance of, of of my Pis- of the Pisces, but yeah. Oh, okay. That's what I, I love you said about because I feel like that's everyone. We're like, oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Everybody. Also, I hate- truly believe it. Yeah. Just assuming everybody hates me isn't just me. Yeah. <laughs> At time of recording, it's almost Leo. It's almost Leo season. So yes. strap in, bitches. <laughs> you guys, I saw a meme recently that some. It was a guy, he's like, oh, I was at a party, and a girl was like, so, like, what's your backstory? And he was like, oh, I have, you know, minor scoliosis. And she was like, oh, my God, wow, I'm a Scorpio. <laughs> oh, my I'm sorry, God. I had to throw That's that hilarious. In. Let's talk about forced sterilization some more. Yeah, let's stick that Yeah, we could get back bullshit. to that. We're No, yeah. <laughs> We're done with laughing now, I guess. <laughs> I feel like scoliosis would be a reason, would just be an excuse for for sterilization. Sterilize them. For sure. I say that as somebody with scoliosis. Oh, yeah. One of the most devastating things to come out of the forced sterilization of Latinas came in 1978 when 10 women brought a federal class action lawsuit against the Los Angeles County USC Medical Center, Dr. James Quilligan, health directors, and state departments for sterilizing them without their informed consent. 1978? Correct. Yes. What? 1978. And actually, to speak to um, whether we're taught this kind of stuff in history or not, in 2020, I remember I was watching a, uh, like, reveal of a new um, exhibition at our California Museum here, and it was all virtual because it was in 2020. They couldn't open up the exhibit to everyone, and they mentioned this case uh, in the California Museum. There's a whole exhibit about it in 2020. So it took us that long to recognize what had happened to these women 
at least in our museums. Yeah, so this was 1978. This case, uh, the case became known as the Madrigal versus Quilligan case. Each of these women have such horrendous and devastating stories, but I do want to highlight a few of them. Uh, beginning with Dolores Madrigal, the named plaintiff in this case, she said that while she was in the hospital in labor with her second child, medical staff approached her multiple times about getting sterilized. She was hesitant, but they assured her that it would be better this way. They told her that her husband had already agreed to the procedure after they had told him that there was a possibility that she could die if she tried to have another kid. Additionally, they lied and told her that the procedure was reversible. Without actually knowing what exactly this form that they kept shoving in her face said, Madrigal signed it. Another one of the plaintiffs, Estella Benavides, had a very similar story. For Rebecca Figueroa and Maria Hurtado, they were under the impression, and might I also add, under the influence of heavy medication, that the forms that were being shoved in their faces were consent forms for the C-section operations that the doctors were about to perform. It would be weeks later when they realized that they had signed consent to be sterilized. Now, some of the... You were about to say something, Cass. No, I, I, she was I just, just going to yell. Lying. I'm just lying. <laughs> I just okay. wanted to yell into the void. All right. Uh, some of the plaintiffs in this case never even signed consent forms. Uh, one woman in particular, Georgina Hernandez, distinctly remembered refusing sterilization multiple times while in labor. Despite this, the doctors just went ahead and sterilized her anyway and would later lie and say that she had totally given them consent and she just couldn't remember due to the excessive pain and bleeding that she was in um, because she was in labor. Another woman, Maria Figueroa, agreed during labor to be sterilized, but only if her baby was a boy. Uh, she ended up giving birth to a girl and the doctor sterilized her anyways. Much like the story of Hernandez, the doctor lied and said that she had given her consent even when she knew for a fact she had not. So gaslighting. Yay. I'm, I'm shocked. Like, truly, I'm shocked they even tried to do, for you know, consent forms. Ugh. Now, some of the women simply gave in after such intense pressure to sign the forms. They were just being, like, barraged with and with doctors telling them they had to sign these. One particular plaintiff, Javita Rivera, said that while she was in labor with her second child, she was told by the doctor that, quote, I had too many children, that I was poor and a burden to the government, and I should sign a paper not to have more children, unquote. She was also lied to and told that the procedure, once again, could be reversed, and so she decided to go ahead and sign the forms. For other plaintiffs, they were denied pain medication if they didn't sign the form. For others, their babies were denied care if they did not sign the form. But for all of these women, the one thing that they all had in common was that not a single one of them wanted to be sterilized. Under the worst possible circumstances, when in extensive labor pain, given false and untruthful information, and for many of these women, there was also that language barrier that we kind of talked about before. Informed consent was simply not possible. In fact, experts have said that when in extreme pain, you can't give informed consent. One of the witnesses for the prosecution in this matter, uh, 
handwriting expert actually compared the signatures of the women on their consent form to their normal everyday signatures and found there to be a drastic difference between the two, indicating that the women had been in excruciating pain and or on heavy medication when they had signed the release forms. They literally tortured them to get them to sign it. Like yeah. Withholding treatment. Mm -hmm. and oh, yeah. Withholding treatment from them, from their newborn baby. I think even their just children. lying if, yeah. you know, you're your your the father of the baby's in another room that because you know they said like the husband in some of these cases was in another room and they would say i got consent from your husband you're like oh shit i guess if he already said yes That's like fucked and... up interrogation tactics mm -hmm. oh it is it's horrible the most devastating to me in all of this are the stories from these women who did not realize that they had been sterilized um returning to the doctor several weeks or months later and learning then I, just, I cannot even imagine yeah. the level of pain and devastation and disappointment to learn that you will never be able to have another baby. An anthropologist who testified during the court case actually talked about the emotional, social, mental, and psychological effects that forced sterilization can have on a woman, a major one being that they lose a sense of self and purpose, which can lead to depression, anxiety, strained relationships, and more. Making them more feeble-minded <sighs> although her testimony would later be dismissed by the judge due to relevance uh, one witness for the prosecution did state that she had overheard uh, dr. Quilligan and others at the hospital perpetuating the harmful stereotypes of, of Latinx uh, women being hyper fertile uh, she also testified that L.A. County Hospital had received a federal grant if they were able to reduce the birth rate of Mexican and black Americans in L.A. This case was not brought before a jury. Rather, the attorneys on both sides decided they would rather have the judge make the final decision. And you're not going to like the final decision this judge made. Ultimately, Judge Jesse Curtis sided with the hospital, stating that the doctors did not do anything wrong and simply had the patient's best interest in mind when they made the des these decisions. Um, and the judge said it was fully within the rights of a doctor to, quote, improve a perceived overpopulation problem, unquote. Cool. cool. Now that falls within a doctor's uh, purview. When you talk about generational trauma, and certain demographics of people from cultures who don't go to doctors like there is a there's a large swath of african americans who are so resistant to going to doctors and you know a lot of minorities whether that be racial or queer or female who don't go to doctors and don't get the help they need it's because, because of historical distrust uh, of hundreds, literally hundreds, thousands of years of, yeah, distrust of being coerced, of being tortured by the medical profession when it was specifically dominated by white male supremacists. Mm -hmm. And those people those demographics of people still don't get the care that they need today. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's generational, it's generational trauma. It's, it's learned, uh, you know, fear 
of don't go to the doctor, bad shit's going to happen. You know, some people are like, oh, I don't want to go to the dentist, it hurts, or I want to go to the doctor, I don't want to get a shot. Imagine being like, oh, I don't want to go to the doctor. I don't know why. Maybe because so many of your ancestors were tortured, sterilized, uh, you know, mm-hmm. all these horrible things. Had experiments performed Ex- on oh, you. Yep. Yeah. Well, and like, I, I mentioned this last week, but obstetrics and gynecology also <laughs> just like historically since the formalization of medicine and by that i mean from the white maleification of the medical uh, i love white maleification the white maleification (laughs) uh was incredibly dangerous and was where like a ton of not that wasn't considered malpractice because they didn't know better i'm using scare quotes there but like doctors and surgeons killed more people in maternity wards Mm than midwives uh ever yeah. did home births yeah yeah i'm gonna i'm just gonna oh i'm gonna i'm gonna keep bringing it back to that because <laughs> <laughs> they, I mean, they didn't so... know to wash their hands and when someone suggested that they wash their hands they took it as an insult yes as an insult that their hands could be uh weapons of like vectors of death and could pass disease even when they're with colleagues it? didn't wash it yeah, right <laughs> can you imagine that ego of like somebody like oh do you wash your hands so like no and i'm gonna <laughs> continue to not because you said that this sounds like creepily relevant to today's society of people that even when it's in their 100 best interest backed by science uh will still refuse even even when it's backed by science and brought up by somebody who does actually look like them. And in this particular case, too, just something you said made me think of it is how systemic this issue is in that all the way up to the judge siding with the doctor saying, oh, no, it, it is 100% within a doctor's rights to improve what is perceived as an overpopulation problem. That, you know, it, like you were saying, the propaganda, the motivation um, to get rid of a population of people that they no longer wanted goes all the way up to the court. Yeah. Who gives anyone the right to, to for a quote directly from the judge again, to improve a perceived overpopulation problem? A perceived being, that being the main thing I'm taking from that, a perceived mm-hmm. overpopulation problem. It's not even, yeah. And yet you're, you're citing fact, you're citing scientific fact, which is not founded, and you're still using the word perceived. Yeah. Mm. I bet that judge was feeble-minded. <laughs> <laughs> he probably used the, or didn't use the Oxford comma. Did not. Oh, absolutely 100, not. sorry, Nat. 100% <laughs> didn't use it. Absolutely sorry. Not. Sorry we keep making Or what if it was like in, in the ruling, he does the opposite of that. It's like improve comma, a comma, perceived comma, overpopulation, <laughs> comma, comma, space, space problem. Oh my God. Space, space. space <laughs> yeah. Okay. I want to blow up the transcript. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, ultimately, this judge, Mr. Oxford, decided that this had all simply been a miscommunication. 
So while these women would never receive legal justice, nor would they ever be able to conceive again, there were some legacies that came out of this trial that we can say cheers to, I guess. It was this trial that led to forms in hospitals being translated into multiple languages, as well as a new policy put in place that patients under the age of 21 were given 70, 72 hours before making any decisions about sterilization. It also should be noted that a lot of hospitals utilize the services of translators now as well. And in 2018, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors issued a formal apology to the women. So took how many years? In 1920, or 1927, whoa, I'm trying to throw us way back. In 1979, not long after the Madrigal versus Quilligan case was settled, the practice of forced sterilizations throughout the state of California was officially abolished. By the time it was all over, some 20,000 women had been forcibly sterilized. Despite the practice being abolished, California still saw instances of it in state prisons afterward. Between the years of 2006 and 2010, an audit found that 144 women in state prisons had been illegally sterilized without their consent. It is estimated that there were about 100 other women that were also illegally sterilized while in prison in the late 1990s. In March of 2003, former California Governor Gray Davis made a formal apology for the state's involvement in the eugenics movement. And in June of 2021, our current California Governor Gavin Newsom, Daddy Newsom as we affectionately call him, <laughs> <laughs> approved $7.5 million for reparations for all survivors of forced uh. or involuntary I'm sterilization I just, I'm sorry, I just between the years of 1909. Bit. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was inappropriate. I just I was like, you know, I think that was a good sound, right? No, that was a, that was a good. Sound. Was it was it for the wait reparations? But was just, it for the reparations or for daddy or for daddy Newsome? It was for the, the reparations. Mean, it was for the <laughs> oh, reparations, yeah. and now I understand why you call him Daddy Newsome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they did get these reparations for all survivors of forced or involuntary sterilization between the years of 1909 and 1979 as well as survivors of any forced sterilizations performed in prisons after 1979 and so that is our awful tragic story yeah <laughs> um first of all can i say that reparations for everybody first of all <laughs> uh Belated saris mm -hmm. suck, and they can they can be very just Political more upsetting theater. than letting it be. Almost. We're just saying this to say it. Yep. Yeah, but you know what? Say it anyway. Yeah, fucking yep. say you're sorry. Back it up, and yeah. with things like reparations. Yeah, like reparations. So you were not, uh, maybe you were not in a seat of power or directly responsible for the thing that happened yeah. you are in the position you are in because of the thing that happened you are directly benefiting from the thing that happened and you are in power now so mm -hmm. fucking do something about it and the government you're representing did it, terrible it, things it did terrible things and so you it's literally your job to well it's like on on the topic of 
well, not on the topic of forced forced sterilization, but on the topic of eugenics, pregnancy, and like taking responsibility for for the past. Like Planned Parenthood advocates for the removal of Margaret Sanger's name from things because she was a eugenicist, and they're like, "Yep, there were great contributions to reproductive rights and access to contraception, but also, but also." We very racist, and also it came from a, it came from a place of uh, of eugenics of let's mm -hmm. get some more contraception towards uh, people of like low income or minority or immigrant backgrounds because we we want we want to stop those pregnancies. When we talk about generational trauma. I, I see so many things on Instagram and people and, and things from my friends and whatnot of like, let's let's stop generational trauma within our own community. Let's be the person who makes the change within our mm -hmm. own community. And like, that's great. Mm -hmm. Challenging, you know, cultural norms within a specific subset. But a lot of that generational trauma was born from white supremacy. And that's just another instance of putting it on the person or the people who have been maligned to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And something mm -hmm. as simple and really doesn't do anything as an official apology, it does matter if you yeah, back it, it up with something, you know, because mm -hmm. you're setting a precedent. You're setting a precedent that this was not okay. We're not going to do it again if you lay that foundation and that groundwork and that's how you stop generational trauma stop traumatizing people and they won't live in that trauma anymore and stop making it their stop making it their responsibility to climb yeah. out of it yeah yes yeah of the hole that they didn't dig yes exactly we had an episode about the the stolen generation of the aboriginal people in australia who were mm -hmm. until the eighties had children stolen yes. and adopted to integrate into white society. And there is yep. a national sorry day in Australia. Mm -hmm. And Australia day is still the day that, you know, captain cook quote unquote discovered Australia, which like, eh, you know, not great, but there's a push to make national sorry day, Australia day. But the fact that the whole country mm -hmm. celebrates one day of being like y'all we fucked up that may not have right. fixed everything or anything but recognizing faults as a country is yep. so so important it is. at a very minimum it's a yearly reminder to acknowledge the hurt and the pain and the generational trauma that exists there and i think one thing that you said that's really important too is when you make an apology you know, words only go so far, actions go further. And that is part of what leads to generational trauma is like, it's not, history is not in the past. History, I mean, I don't know how to say that more eloquently, but the fact that we're talking about these sorts of things today and they're relevant and they pertain to what we are going through today, that's a problem. When we talk about, um, you know, the, the racism that 
black Americans have faced and the mass incarceration that black Americans face, when we talk about that in a historical perspective, but we still see it every single day, that's a problem. When we talk about Japanese uh, detention camps and there's still so much racism against Asian Americans, that, that today, that's a problem. That's why these things continue to persist is because they don't get remedied. We would not be this angry talking about history if it weren't still going on. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is probably why the Oxford comma thing yeah, I is think so we'll fresh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She's trying to make she's trying to lighten the mood. But certainly I think what you're no, saying yeah, is I, exactly right. Yes. Like if we saw this story, if we saw this story, we'd be like, ew, gross California. That is so nasty of you that you did that. Thank God we've come so far from what that. A, what a ridiculous story. It would yeah. be one of those. Like, oh, my God, that's yeah. bizarre. What the hell? Yeah. But the fact that I we're think, angry. Leah, you, mm -hmm. Yeah. Leah and I, actually, we just recently released an episode um, about historical torture techniques. So, you know, like, just like the Iron Maiden and um, thumb screws and, like, just crazy yeah. stuff, right? And and I know it's so gross. I love but it, one but of the things that it. Leah said, which goes right <laughs> that's what we said too. We love it and hate it. Uh, made us squeamish the whole time, but so fascinating. But what Leah said, the reason why she thinks it's so fascinating, why even though it's gross, but we're still like almost I don't want to say entertained, but fascinated by it, is because it is so illogical, because it is so far in the past, because it is so crazy and something we would never do now is why we're able to almost look at it with like a morbid fascination mm -hmm. but we can't do that here when we still see examples of these things every single day and that is why it's so important to talk about history that we know about but we don't know about mm -hmm. like we have those mm -hmm. oh we know there is forced sterilization in this one specific instance in this whatever this footnote yeah. that we get in a whatever, but something that was so close to our country in California, in the country mm -hmm. I live in, but that yeah. California is seemingly this other world or the West is this other world. And when we're taught history, we think of California as frontier. And, and it's, yeah. and when we think of present, we think of California as like, Oh, you know, like you said, progressive and yada da. Like, but they're not fully, and their history is not. And no. we, it's not that far ago. Seventy-eight. We can't, we can't separate no, not at that all. as like, you know, tall tales and way back whens. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. I mean, if this this practice of forced sterilization in California was not officially abolished until 1979, and then even after that, all the way up till at least that we know of 2010, there were still women in state prisons that were being illegally sterilized, even after it was officially abolished. So it just continues. Yeah. So yay. <laughs> yay! <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I'd like to... I mean, yay that we finally yeah. had you guys on, but not, yeah, not, yeah. not yay about the last mm -hmm. yeah, no, hour. On behalf of me, Leah, and Rachel, um, oh, I'm geez. speaking for them. We would like to thank you 
for opposing the Oxford comma because is is it is the only way we've been able to bring a morsel of levity throughout this entire. Episode. It's honestly true. It's true. You're right. I'm line. so glad that that happened. <laughs> yeah, I am now grateful that that happened. Thank you for being our sacrificial lamb, Natalie. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad you serve a purpose. It's not often that I feel like I have, so I'm uh, I'm happy to to provide this service. Uh, Rachel, Leah, tell everybody how. Well, you know, no, don't tell anyone anything until I get to learn another thing from you. Um, Columbus didn't discover shit, uh, but we all make so many discoveries that we can claim as our own all the time. So I would like to invite you to to plant a flag in a great discovery that you have made recently that you made. Nobody, nobody's ever heard of this or seen this before. Not before you guys. Yeah. Um, so I discovered, well, I, I was the first. I am the first to discover the mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. I know no one has heard of this book, even though it is right now like a bestseller. Um, I'm pretty are both sure you it looking was... at me like you haven't heard of it? Thanks to you. I haven't. Oh, yeah. Oh. I'm pretty sure it's an, I, like it's on like the Oprah you, book club. If you or look something. up, like, yeah. Yeah, I because mean, Rachel I, put it there. I essentially wrote it. Um, <laughs> but if if anyone needs a good read, it was really great. I just finished it like a week ago, and I'm still talking about it because I was pleasantly surprised by it because it is like one of the most popular books out there right now. I find that those books are like most popular books are sometimes kind of trashy. <laughs> like they're just like easy breezy reads, but this one actually had some really good depth in the characters and it was very good. If anyone needs a read, Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Not to be confused with the Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, a book that came oh my up gosh. around the same oh, time. <laughs> also very, very good, but what a confusing wow. really title conundrum. Is. All right. I did not discover that other one. I uh, I actually, I have that book waiting for, uh, I'm waiting for my hold to come in from the library. Thank you to Rachel's oh, discovery and recommendation. Could you Certainly. she hadn't told you that? I put it there at that library. Yeah. <laughs> Thank my you. My discovery is history related. And I just found this out on TikTok. Um, if anybody's into like royal history, which I, I, I shamefully am kind of, um, <laughs> apparently <laughs> Prince William uh, will be the first direct descendant of Charles II, who was the last Stuart King in the 17th century to rule the UK. So when he becomes king, he is going to be the, the nearest descendant to the Stuart throne that Jacobites unite! Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Outlander, for t teaching me about Jacobites. <laughs> yes, he he's more British than his his daddy is apparently. Because, what? How? Yeah. So after Charles Charles the second didn't couldn't produce an heir, and so it just went on this little like side scurry where his sister or or um, brother became the ruler and then somebody else did it and then none of them could have children so they ended up bringing like german blood into the bloodline just a quick mm -hmm. genetic side <laughs> quest yeah. and so mo like most of the current um family they actually are like come from germanic descendants and are actually from like the german bloodline but 
um, Princess Diana apparently is descended directly from the Stuart bloodline. So when Suck she Suck got- it, Charles! Diana, yeah. get it! <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that cool? I want a shirt. I want a shirt that all it says is Diana did it. <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh my God. That's, that's my favorite. Like, I'm, I'm going to say my discovery's better, but it's, a close Maybe a tie. It's only because it's silly. Okay. And really, it's not better at all. That blew my mind. I'm obsessed <laughs> with that. Kind of, oh, my God. Yeah. I'm watching Outlander again. The reason why mine is better <laughs> is my discovery is a new show on Netflix called How to Build a Sex Room. So, like, how could you top mm. that? I just saw that. It was on my recommendations. And I was like, what? <laughs> I've never heard of it. It's new. It just came out. I had a friend staying in town and we just saw the title and I was like joking like how to build a sex room. We have to watch that. What's it actually? Is it actually it's about like building a sex room? Like what's up it about? Property Brothers HGTV. We're going to renovate a room in your house. But it is this fantastically quirky British woman named Melanie Rose who is just like. Oh. She builds a sex room. She's like, what kind of stuff do you like? Are we looking for a dungeon? Are we looking for a <laughs> sensual getaway? Let me go into my dirty bag of tricks. And she brings out like a bag of like whips and dildos. She's like, do you like this? What do you think of this? And it's phenomenal. And it's. I love this. It's I weirdly it. so wholesome. Oh, I, I'm. I feel because like it has to it be. Ends up I don't know. These like couples, like communicating, like it. Yes. It becomes so like therapeutic, therapeutic and like talking about this really vulnerable thing and finding ways to be open about it and like it's like oh my god, you want to like tie up and flog each other and talk about your like emotional boundaries and the way you connect to each other as oh my god it's i love hilarious this. sexy and wholesome oh which how can you I put love those it. three words together with an oxford yeah. comma <laughs> with the oxford comma <laughs> that is how you would put those three items in one sentence <laughs> Oh, it's almost like you could put them in a sentence without the Oxford comma and it would still make sense because none of them are complicated things. Uh, I would like to retitle that show, uh, Love It, List It, or Lick It. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's perfect. Very clever. Very clever. Small, small copyright infringement, but still very clever. It's fine. No, it'll be fine. (laughs) Who's going to tell me? I'll put the comma in a different spot. My discovery um, also ties really nicely uh, into sex and breeding. Um, <laughs> I I was blessed this morning. I met and discovered a pit bull wiener dog mix, and he was very handsome. And I got lost into the the chocolatey <laughs> pools of his eyes. Oh, and did you take he, him home? He, I I bent down to pet him, and he hugged me, and um. So now I'm invincible. Natalie, Natalie uh, texted me today yeah. and says, quote, I met a pit bull wiener dog mix this morning and he hugged me when I pet him. So we are blessed today. <laughs> oh, and I we cry. are blessed. That, that is a sure sign. What does a pit bull wiener yeah. dog look yeah. like? 
I wish you had taken a photo because I want to know as well. It looks like a, a corgi shaped pit bull. It looks like you took a pit bull. Uh, you chopped oh, his legs it. off. Stop at the it. Knees. I just found a picture and I'm about to die. And then you Hold just on. stretched I'm the share butt my out a little bit. Can. Stop. Stop. Stop it right it. now. Just. Just it's not even like blended. It. it literally just looks like you cut the head off of a pit bull <laughs> and put it on a wiener dog. Stop <laughs> it. Oh, he's so perfect. Hi, buddy. Oh, oh man. I would have never known so that, was, that that mix existed been. except for you. So you really did discover it. And it hugged you. Yeah, he jumped up on my I'll leg and I was like, I'm not going to stop you. Uh, and, and I pet him. He kind of like smooshed into me when I pet him and his tiny little legs oh. went around my leg. And I was like, I always feel so bad <laughs> because I know when dogs jump and owners are like, don't jump. They're doing it because they're like working on the dog, not jumping. But I'm always like, no, it's fine. It's okay. Yeah. I'm like, please jump. <laughs> this, this guy's, this guy's, uh, dad did not even <laughs> try to stop him. I also did the thing where I asked, I said, uh, because uh, they had kind of veered off of the sidewalk as I approached. And so I was like, oh, maybe he's like trying not to make, like make the dog deal with people. And so I, I just said, I was like, is that a pit bull dachshund mix? And he's like, yes, it is. And I was like, <laughs> Did I... you whisper it like that? And, uh, yes. <laughs> I was like, can I find him? And he goes, he's like, he's like, oh, yeah, he's super friendly. And I wanted to be like, never in a mo for a moment did I doubt that this thing was not. friendly. Of course not. Did you yeah. see it? Look at him. I'm like, never for a moment. I just wanted to get your consent before I pet your dog. This, I'm sorry, everyone else. That was the best discovery, so. Podcasting is a visual medium, uh, but in case, you know, you can't see into our mind's eye what this uh, dog looks like, we'll, Look it up. we'll post a picture. Yeah. We'll yeah. link a photo uh, below in the show description, along with a bunch of other vis visual aids from Leah and Rachel's story. And also, you can find all those on Instagram at SharedPod. Uh, Leah and Rachel, where can everyone find and follow you? You can find us on uh, uh, Instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast, or our website is hashtag history pod.com. Um, those are our most active sites uh, or like things that we update the most, most often. We are also on TikTok um, at just at hashtag history but we don't post very often if i'm gonna be we honest. have a presence there it's just not a very loud presence we're present mm -hmm. that's fair it's a lot of work the youths just have more time they do yeah the rest of us have full-time jobs i mean i have plenty of time to watch tiktoks i just don't have a i don't want to make them yeah it seems <laughs> i it seems i always have time to watch right um everyone go listen to hashtag history we absolutely adore them and give them a follow and oh man just have a great day you too and do better america yeah. <laughs> until next time share you share later, you later. <laughs>